I think if you had an athlete that came in and was just like, oh, you know, which is sort of what athletes in, I guess, maybe older eras used to do, which is automatic buy-in. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it. Let's just do it. That's also great and a, and, a, and a quality that we're sort of losing a little bit um, with younger athletes now coming through. But I think you need a blend of those. You need athletes with that growth mindset that are ready to do what you ask them to do. But I love it when athletes ask these questions. I want them informed. I want them to know exactly why we're doing what we're doing and then how we're going to do it because then I get more quality information and feedback back from them. Hello and welcome to this Leaders Performance Podcast brought to you today by our main partners Kaiser. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and I wanted to kick off this episode by wishing you all a very happy new year. I hope you enjoyed the holidays and are managing to stay safe and well wherever you are in the world. Coming up on today's episode is Johnny Parks, the Assistant Head of Strength and Conditioning for the Tennis Program at IMG Academy in Florida. The members of the Institute amongst you have more than likely seen Johnny at one of our sports performance summits down the years, and some of you may even listen to his Compete Like a Champion podcast, which he co-hosts with fellow Leaders member Larry Lauer. So if performance is in your wheelhouse, and I suspect that it is if you're here, then do go back and check out Johnny and Larry's podcast when you're done with this one. But here and now, I speak to Johnny about his efforts to build trust with athletes and instill good performance habits through effective feedback. Later in the conversation, we touch upon the challenge of blending the physical, emotional, mental, tactical and technical aspects of performance in preparation for competition. Johnny then tells me why he's seen more injuries in tennis than ever despite the growing sophistication of recovery tools, before then taking a look at the future of physical preparation in tennis. I think it's a fascinating chat and I hope you'll glean some insights too and I want to thank our main partners Kaiser for helping to make these podcasts possible. So that's all still to come, but first I want to remind you that if you're a Leaders Performance Institute member, please keep an eye out for the three virtual roundtables we will be hosting during January. First, on the 13th of January, we explore the ways to effectively navigate organisational change. Then, on the 18th of January, we look at the application of high-performance strategy and planning. Then, towards the end of the month, on the 27th of January, we have our first Leadership Skills Series roundtable of 2022. That will be discussing the theme of leading organisational change. Beyond that, there's plenty more to look forward to in the month of January at the Leaders Performance Institute. Remember to keep checking out our Performance Hub as well for regular content across themes covering leadership and culture, coaching and development, human performance and data and innovation. And remember, the Leaders team are never more than an email or a call away if you need anything. And if you don't happen to be a Leaders Performance Institute member yet, then please check out leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to find out more. Now, on with the show, where I began by asking Johnny about the performance values and principles he lives and works by. Yeah, so a lot of the values that we go off is really effort and engagement. Uh, so ultimately, giving giving full effort in what, what the athlete's doing and holding them accountable to that full effort. And it's not in a way that I demand effort out of them. It's a way of helping them understand what full effort looks like and why it's important according to their goals of what they're trying to achieve. You know, so that uh, really put that down to the physical side. On the mental side, it's really down to engagement that we put it down to, how engaged they are in what they're doing. Are they fully focused in the task at hand, the challenge? Because if they are, we know that that leads to performance gains if they're they're all in physically and mentally into what they're doing. 
Uh, on top of that, I always like to tell the athletes that I work with, if you do those two too well, really well, they're giving themselves a lot of respect, a lot of respect that they're approaching their training in the right way that may not lead to results right away. But at some point that will, that will transfer respect is obviously about the trust that they have with their coaching team. And then lastly, I mean, just a simple thing, which is like showing that ability to be on time, that punctuality, because again, I think that punctuality shows a a level of motivation the athlete has to reach those goals. Are they able to create high performing habits with those four effort, engagement, respect and punctuality? If they are, I think that would, um, from a value standpoint, that would set them on the right path. So ultimately, what is it you're trying to appeal to within the athlete when you talk about some of those different values that you mentioned there? Is it appealing to their competitive nature or their personalities? I think a bit of both. It's definitely, first of all, it, it depends on the age and stage of the athlete that, you, that we, we've got in front of us. And it's trying to teach them what that looks like and why it's important. And really, it's trying to tap into intrinsic motivation over anything is getting them to link to what's important to them and what is the process around how they're going to achieve it, as opposed to being more of a, what I would call a coach-centered approach, which is being more autocratic, going, you got to do this because I say so. Well, no, I mean, we want you to do this because from a value standpoint, if you have the intrinsic motivation to do these things very well, it's going to move you closer to where you need to be. Um, so it's very much a teaching tool to be able to show them what those habits look like for the long term. So you're clearly taking a relationships-based approach. And within that context, what types of question do you seek to ask of them? What sort of information do you need from them in order to do your job more effectively and more efficiently? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something when I was younger, you're thinking a bit more internally as a coach, right? So without realizing you're taking more of that coach-centered approach as opposed to being more athlete-centered. So with regards to that and being more relationship-based, it's really getting a feel for how the athlete is doing, what the athlete likes, what they're learning along the way. And it's this relationship that is constantly seeking the discussion that is led by the athlete. So those questions would be, how they think that they're going to achieve their goals. How do they think that their training is going to go? So we're trying to get the perception of uh, a clearer picture of their perception of their training and how it transfers to competition. So you're absolutely right. And I think the modern day coach has to tap into what the athlete is going through in those different nuances, those on a daily basis, because every day they could wake up and feel a bit different for some reason or another, have a have a bad night's sleep, uh, maybe didn't eat as well or drink as well the night before, and it's affected them going into their training that day. And then as coaches, we then take that information and we have to be adaptable to what we've got. We've always got our plans, or we should always have our plans in front of us of what we're going to do during that cycle. But we need to be adaptable according to where the athletes are. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge them. We, we're always going to challenge the athlete. We always must challenge the athlete, whether that be physically or mentally. The question is, is where is that line that would push them way overboard? And that, that changes on a daily basis according to how the sports practices have gone, how they've actually done within their, their, their off, well, for us, their off-court training, 
but then you've got to take into account their level of recovery. So it has to be a discussion between the athlete and the coaches or the coaching team on a daily basis. And then the level of challenge has to be appropriate according to where they're at. And speaking of challenges and maybe even opportunities, and if we focus on the pre-competition period, of course, you're helping them to prepare for competition. I'm not quite sure what pre-season looks like in a tennis context, Johnny, but perhaps you can help explain in your answer. What do you think tennis does well and what do you think could be done better in general? Yeah, well, as you say, so uh, it, it, the challenge is being able to get preseason blocks in. And when I say preseason, if we can get a four, four to six week block, and if we're really lucky, four to eight week block, I think we're, we're going to do pretty well. And that's the challenge with the sport of tennis is there's competitions all over the place. It's like the Cheesecake Factory menu, if you're, if you're, if you're listening from the US. It's a massive menu. Um, you can pick tournaments all over the place, but prioritizing your training so that you can take your foundation to another level and building upon that takes time with a training block. So the challenge really is is how do we focus in on those skill development blocks, physical, mental, emotional, ta technical, tactical? How do we block those out in the year to then bleed into a really good competitive cycle? And then the opportunities, I'd say then the opportunities is, are within that. How do we do that really well when we get those opportunities to then create a lifelong buy-in for the athlete that this is an essential part of their year is getting one or two or hopefully even three of these blocks in a year to really keep them progressing and developing. But yeah, preseason is definitely a challenge. It's something that most tennis players go through around November, December before the turn of the year. But we are getting, there is more buy-in, especially at the professional level now into doing preseasons. And how do you feel that that preseason programming has evolved in recent years from your perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it's, I'm still quite young as a coach, so I'm still learning so much with regards to, to the in, understanding individual difference for, different, uh, for the different athletes, the goals of the different athletes. But the programming to me would definitely have, have, have become a little bit more sophisticated. You know, there'd, there'd be times that you may have seen athletes working really, really hard, but you would sort of, you wouldn't question it, but you would, you would maybe ask questions around the intent and the purposeful practice around their training. And I think now there is definitely a lot more purposeful practice, purposeful training centered around the athlete's individual goals. So if I have a group of five or six different athletes I'm sorting out for their preseason, they may do a couple sessions together according to where they're at. But ultimately, they're on slightly different programs uh, in the gym, whether it be their sets, rep schemes, exercise selection. And they've got different movement goals as well. And so every, every athlete will have an individualized plan according to what they would like to achieve. And then obviously the characteristics and, and qualities that are going to help them get there. So yeah, that, that individual nature is extremely important. And do you find that athletes and players are better informed these days, that they're asking more informed questions? I mean, what sort of questions as well do athletes tend to ask you? I mean, there's a two-pronged question there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do think they're more informed, but I think that comes with the nature of getting more involved with doing training blocks and getting more used to it. They see their peers doing it. So they start to ask more questions. And the first question is like, should I be doing it? How long should I be doing it? How much sport should I be playing? So how much tennis should I be playing alongside my physical training? How does that progress? When do I switch from, you know, in, if they're doing a longer block of training, when do they switch from doing two a days of their strength and conditioning 
to one a day and two tennis a day. So the usual structure for a tennis player is they, they practice twice a day and they generally do probably one strength and conditioning session. Well, that, that flips on its head during a preseason. You know, so those are the types of questions that they're asking. The level of recovery, what should they be doing for their rest and recovery, the nutritional side, the hydration side, things like ice baths and the appropriateness of when to have those or take those, timing of seeing a, a trainer for their prep work. Athletes are definitely starting to ask the right questions, which is great. I think if you had an athlete that came in and was just like, oh, you know, which is sort of what athletes and I guess maybe older eras used to do, which is automatic buy-in. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it. Let's just do it. That's also great and a, and a, and a quality that we're sort of losing a little bit um, with younger athletes now coming through. But I think you need a blend of those. You need athletes with that growth mindset that are ready to do what you ask them to do. But I love it when athletes ask these questions. I want them informed. I want them to know exactly why we're doing what we're doing and then how we're going to do it because then I get more quality information and feedback back from them, right? So so they're tapping into how their body's feeling, how they're doing, they're, they're understanding how to get the most out of their own bodies. And I think if we educate them along the way, they're going to understand that these demands and the, the feelings that they're going through, the soreness, the tiredness, the little bit of tightness in certain areas after certain sessions, that's all normal. Then you start educating around the recovery because of how they feel. So they are asking the right questions. I think they're definitely becoming more informed, and but I like it that way, uh, I think. Onward with the conversation in a moment, but first I want to give a shout out to our main partners, Kaiser, who make these podcasts possible. As many of you will know, Kaiser have been changing the world of fitness for over 40 years and we're proud that leaders have now partnered with Kaiser for more than 10 years. More than 80% of the top sports teams in the world now train with Kaiser exercise equipment. If you would like to talk to Kaiser, please get in touch with a member of the leaders team who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, head to kaiser.com to find out more. And now, back to the conversation with Johnny Parks. We've spoken before, of course, and I remember you mentioning a player's self-respect or an athlete's self-respect is really important when it comes to their physical preparation work and their pursuit of performance gains. What is the link there? I wonder if you could perhaps elaborate on that link between a player's self-respect and their performance goals. Yeah, this is a, this is a big one. It's, it's sometimes the athlete and the coach, they sort of lose a little bit of track when they're in the midst of training. They, they lose a bit of track of what those goals are. I always like to say to an athlete, put your goals down on paper and put them on your bedside table or on your wall right next to you. You're not reading it every morning, but it's the first thing that you see. And it just jogs the memory of what your purpose is. So that self-respect is, is really down to your purpose. And really being that having such a clear understanding of what it is that you're trying to achieve and then how you're going to achieve it. If you're really clear on why you're doing, what you're doing, and how you're doing it, and you're very clear on that, and you're respecting that process, you can get a lot closer to those goals. So that self-respect comes from that internal drive to constantly keep pushing for more. And there are going to be times when the brain is heavy, the body is heavy, and you have to literally lift your legs and get yourself out of bed. But then the minute you look at that goal sheet, 
it, it's like a, it's an AED shock. It's like, this is what I'm here to do. And, and that is self-respect. You're respecting who you are and you're respecting the process of how you're going to achieve what you're going to achieve. And that's how I, you know, when I talk to athletes, I really hope they start understanding more. It's the coaches are challenging you and demanding a lot out of you because ultimately they want to help you do what you want to do. But it has to start with the athlete respecting themselves, their process. And to do that, it has to link to purpose and clarity of that, in my opinion. And one more question really about the pre-season period from your perspective. That's probably the period when you can work best with a player on whatever weaknesses they may have. And I'm sure that's a very individualized situation as well. But to what extent can weaknesses be built up or do you find yourself compensating or covering for them from, from the practitioner's perspective? Yeah, it's always a balance of weighing up. Do you take more of a strengths approach or do you take that areas of improvement approach and the balance between the two? Um, I think, first of all, it's at the stage of development that the athlete, if you have a younger athlete, you're going to have a bit more of a blended balance between enhancing those strengths and mitigating those weaknesses. The older the athlete gets, tend to take a little bit more of that strength strengths approach. Now, to, to saying that, though, you've got to regulate, are those weaknesses such a barrier to improvement, in which case it's it's a discussion with the athlete on, do we have the time? And we're going to invest in the time to really focus on those areas of improvement, those areas of focus, or do we not quite have the time that that those areas need? In which case, it's about taking the strengths approach and trying to mitigate those weaknesses as much as possible and protecting the protecting those weaknesses. But again, that yeah, it is as you mentioned there. It's an individual individual case by case scenario there so the younger the athlete i tend to be more of a balance between between the two and the older the athlete gets it's definitely taking a bit more of that strengths and, and enhancing that and by doing that it's also both strategies are, the goal is to improve their confidence in themselves if you're constantly always working on their weaknesses and you don't have the time to, that it's going to require then they're, they're taking a hit every day because that you know when you work on your weaknesses it is very mentally challenging to try and perform in those areas of weakness. But then you're also, if you're not working on your strengths, they're taking a confidence hit there too. So then when they're required to use their strengths, and if we haven't sharpened those tools, they're not going to perform as as they probably perceive themselves to perform at the, at the level they want. So the ultimate goal out of any scenario is confidence building in their own skill sets. And obviously, again, the younger they are, the more balanced, the older they are, got to make sure that they're feeling 100% confident in their strengths that's going to take them into competition. And as players go into competitions as a season wears on, how does your approach and your thinking change and how are decisions made to change a particular aspect of a player's program? What is the process behind that? First of all, it's like I mentioned, the discussion with the athlete and getting to understand what they like to do going into, into competition. Generally, what we do on the physical preparation side is the closer they get to competition, the more we would, first of all, taper down their program. But there's going to be more things, especially with tennis, You know, all movement starts with the eyes. So we would be doubling down on a lot of speed reactive elements to help them be very sharp with the process of what they see to what their brain plans from what they see to then what their body does with those messages that the brain sends to the body. So it's all about sharpening those, uh, making them feel that they are a bit more fast twitch. So that would be the switch. We would generally dial back their program in the gym to a little less volume, but we may go a little heavier. 
with that less volume. So again, it's all about how quickly we are firing messages from the brain to the body. But from a movement quality standpoint, it's how quick they're able to recognize a situation and read information to process it to then do it with their with their body. So if you want to call it essentially the OODA loop is something that was be, has become quite popular. The observe, the orientate, the processing, and then obviously the execution. So if we can make that process quick before they go in, I think they're going to feel pretty confident that they can read information pretty quickly and go. So that's how we would build them into competition quite nicely. And I've heard it said on more than one occasion that tennis players are almost the CEO of their own business. They are at the center Mm. of the performance and they have a performance team around them. Now, I'm curious to ask you as well, Johnny, when it comes to programming for a player, obviously the player and the performance team have to agree a route forward. There has obviously been some give or take on all sides. But how do you personally stop that potentially being a frustration? How do you as a practitioner frame that and then move on and move forward for the good of the player? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, it's the level of experience of being part of a team like that within tennis, I think we start with. I'm not sure a lot of athletes, when they're starting that process, are very comfortable with that situation and that scenario. You know, if you're on a football team or a a basketball team, you've got you've got groupthink, you've got group conformity, you're in the locker room, you've got coaches, and it's an automatic thing. The higher level you get within tennis, the more options that become available to add people to your team, specialists, right? So I think the the lower down you are in those ranking bands, the less that you could probably afford um, if you don't have support or a sponsor. Uh, So it becomes about probably seeking out a generalist, a generalist that can help you across all areas. And then as you get a little bit older or you have the resources and you put that team around you, I think, first of all, it's, it's getting somebody with experience being part of a team in an individual sport where the athlete is the CEO. It's understanding the level of comfort that the CEO, the athlete, has. And if they're not that comfortable, then you've got to, you've got to train them. You've got to train them up to understand that they've got to make decisions. They have to make choices. The, the timing of when to worry about other aspects of the business other than when they're competing and out there and they're playing and they're training. Piecing together a team is then, again, about understanding and clarity of everybody's roles and responsibilities within that team. But I would start with, let's let's help educate the athlete as to this is their team. They have to come up, they have to be vocal, they have to feel that they are essentially leading a discussion in many cases. They are seeking feedback from their coaching team about what they feel that they need. And then it's going around the room. It's from the, the tennis coach, what are the main priorities of development? Are we all on the same page with that? From the physical coach, the, the, the strength conditioning coach, are we all aligned as opposed to the, the game style and the physical profile that's required to play uh, that, that athlete to play their best? What are the mental attributes that go into that? If I'm a grinder, if I'm playing from the back as a counterpuncher, I'm going to need my legs, my lungs, and my head more engaged for a lot longer. If I'm a serve and volleyer or an all-court player that's trying to attack the net a lot, I have to be very sharp and switched on to be very opportunistic when I get the chance and I get those, those moments. I can't, I can't let those moments go by very often or else I'm in trouble. And that takes short, sharp, fast focus to take advantage of that. Uh, so again, it's is everybody on the same team with their role and their responsibility in helping the athlete fulfill their desired goals of what they're trying to, to move towards? And again, as I mentioned, it's a discussion that is hopefully athlete-led as, they, as you move forward. 
And by the time you reach whatever passes for the off-season in tennis, what condition do the players tend to be in? Of course, it must differ from player to player. It must be very individual, you know, case by case. But I wondered if you could perhaps give me a cross-section of the condition that players might find themselves in at the end of a long season. Yeah, I, I would actually think they probably felt pretty good physically. I think mentally they're going to feel a bit a bit drained. So it's about taking the time off needed to feel like they've reset their mind and their body. Tennis are high energy athletes. They're always on the go. So they build, they do build up a physical resiliency to keep going more and more. Um, and generally athletes will keep going sometimes until their body tells them no via injury. Uh, but athletes that are well conditioned, I would feel that by the end of a season, yeah, they're going to be, it's normal tiredness that they're feeling physically, but mentally that draining. So when they get to that point, it's taking some time off. And I would say that at some point, whether it's before they take an extended period of time off, whether it be a week or a few days, or maybe longer than a week, there has to be a reflection and a feedback, reflection and feedback that needs to take place from the athlete. How did my season go as a whole over the course of the year? What areas went well? What areas didn't? If I played really well on the hard court season, but I didn't play very well on the clay court season, do I need to invest more time into my clay court game, into the physical skills and attributes to play on the clay and do better there? So that reflection and feedback stage has to happen at the end of the, at the, end of the year. But it's whether they want to do that after they've had a physical mental rest of just switching off or whether they get it out the way with before. That's the wrap up. Then they take their time off. And then they're very clear when they start up that preseason again uh, and going into their season. So that to me is is really a big part of the off-season reflection, feedback, and, and then physical and mental rest. But yeah, the uh, you know now we're starting to see what they really are feeling like in an off-season now that they're actually getting a bit of off-seasons where maybe wasn't the case a little while ago. And as programming becomes ever more sophisticated are you finding that certain types of injury are more or less prevalent than before in tennis yeah so i don't know if this would be somewhat of a controversial statement but the there's more injury prevention programs out there than ever before We're, we know more about injuries and we put together specific exercises for specific areas we kind of lose sight that the whole body has a connection that that works together so if we over-isolate an area, the assumption is we're going to improve that area and there's less injury. But as far as I'm aware, and again, I'm still a young coach learning so much here, but there's still a lot of injuries. There's still more injuries than really than ever. As we get more sophisticated with preparation and training, I mean, you would assume an injury would go down. But in tennis, you generally get, obviously, what makes sense, injuries to the back, to the shoulder, to the lower extremity with the hips. You know, rarely do you actually get like full muscle tears or pulls in tennis because you're never really going full speed for, for massive amounts of distance. And so you're not changing direction at full speeds as well. It's a lot of short, sharp change of direction. So generally you get like joint issues, maybe with the knees, the ankles, the hips, the shoulders, thoracic spine. So those are all things that you have to mitigate and program in when you when we're planning our training doing exercises and movements in all different directions, in different planes, at different speeds. You have to take into account everything in tennis. It, it, it's literally a sport that covers every single athletic quality under the sun. So injury prevention is really just having a good physical program um, is going to be the best way to mitigate those injuries. So, you know, that's what we're seeing on the tennis side, you know, but that, that's my sort of opinion with, with, with training is the best form of injury prevention is physical, pre is a good physical preparation program. So, and of course we're talking about tennis, but 
Are there any lessons that you've learned from other disciplines? Yeah, I, so it's great being in an environment like IMG Academy because we, we're so connected to other sports just within the environment. Tennis is paired with basketball on one side of the facility. So I, I tend to go and watch a lot of the basketball practices and see how they're doing. A lot of the movement qualities are very similar in basketball than they are in tennis. Obviously, that the, the, the hand-eye coordination and the movement qualities, I mean, you know, beside the obvious, it's a bigger ball in basketball and, you know, you're doing more striking, obviously, in tennis. But you're definitely, I'm definitely learning a lot from other sports in terms of similarities in movement quality, movement technique. So that that's really cool. And then seeing different different ways of coaching it, different coaching cues. You know, I'm always fascinated by how coaches can simplify things. And so when I hear a coaching cue that I feel I could take that would make my coaching simpler, I get really excited by that. Learning as well. So tennis is a high impact sport. Basketball is a high impact sport. Learning about the volume with that. So, you know, I work closely with my counterpart who, who kind of oversees the basketball and they're doing some some workload data, you know, workload management and getting an understand of um, how they introduce plyometrics and the progression of those because, the, you know, tennis athletes jump a lot, basketball athletes jump a lot, basketball probably a, little, you know, a lot more than tennis, but trying to understand those different elements and how they all link in to how I could take those pieces of information that would link to tennis in, in best practices is definitely something we can take from other sports. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool environment over here that we're able to see things really easily, actually, without having to leave the grounds. So uh, I think we're very fortunate for that. And if there was one thing you could change about physical preparation in tennis, what would it be? Oh, you're really getting me thinking now. So yeah, I think the one thing that I would like with physical preparation, I think this is a structural thing. I think there should be a mandatory period of time in the year that both the men's and professional men's and women's and even the juniors should be should take that there are no competition so this is a could be a six-week period that there are no competitions on the calendar anywhere then you've got choices to make as 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 coaches are we going to use this full six six weeks eight weeks whatever they decide that there's no competitions in how are we going to utilize those six to eight weeks and i think there you're going to see athleticism increase you're going to see more robust, physical, resilient, mentally resilient athletes. So that's the one thing I would change is, is having a mandatory sort of block of rest, recovery, and physical preparation. And if you could gaze into your crystal ball, what aspects do you see driving development in the physical preparation work in tennis over the next few years? And where do you think the sport will be perhaps in five years' time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so tennis is definitely a high, you know, it's an acceleration, deceleration sport, if anything, more more decelerations. I think where I see see tennis moving is becoming more sophisticated around the knowledge of what builds speed, what builds acceleration and the physical qualities and characteristics around deceleration, the strength, stability, the balance and all those components. So yeah, I think getting more sophisticated with regards to programming for the athlete. And being able to be okay, taking it step by step, as opposed to trying to cover everything in that same block. So if I could have my crystal ball, I would say, and we were able to have those physical blocks regularly, it's being able to break things down and be more sophisticated in the progression of an athlete to really meet the high demands of the sport for things like accelerations and decelerations, anaerobic and aerobic capacities. Uh, there's still so much we don't know. Tennis is, you know, getting into this realm of really 
doubling down on technology. So we understand the distances traveled, total distances covered in a match. We're starting to understand the amount of accelerations and decelerations in a, in a direction. So I think as we start learning more information about that in a given match, like 75% of, of, of accelerations and decelerations are done to their forehand side, for example. It's a high number, but if we know that's a demand, then we're able to then better plan, plan out our sessions to meet those demands. Uh, so as we start getting more information about that, and generally you're seeing that just in sort of grand slams and the top level, that high level data coming through, we get more detail around those physical aspects. Then we can start planning more specifically to meet those demands. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Johnny Parks, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much, John. It's, it was great chatting. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>